0: Welcome to Women's Voices in Context. I'm your host, Genevieve Gluck, and I'll be joined later by Caroline Norma to discuss some recent news events from the past week. This episode pertains to news regarding women's rights for the week of January 29th to February 5th, 2021. First, I will announce some of the top stories, and then Caroline and I will have a discussion about some of these recent events. A report on Britain's red light district in Leeds found children exposed to the sex industry, drug addiction, and the idea that, quote, people are consumable commodities, end quote. In some instances, young children were propositioned by sex buyers and pimps. A trend on TikTok called Silhouette Challenge shows young women stripping down and implementing a red light filter associated with the sex industry. Men are uploading tutorials on how to remove the filter and expose women and teens in the nude. Research indicates that over a third of TikTok users are under 18. A report by Lucy Robinson for Vice found that teens using the video sharing app TikTok are encouraging a BDSM culture. The hashtag freak has over 1.2 billion views. The hashtag choke me has 45.3 million. According to Robinson, videos that glorify sexual violence are extremely popular on TikTok. There are videos romanticizing domestic abuse, the psychotic boyfriend trope, and even the quote, things girls want but won't ask for. Last summer, TikTok was forced to remove some content under the 365 days hashtag after users used it to display bruises obtained during sex or footage of grabbing their partners by the throat. Lawmakers in Utah are seeking to reform revenge porn laws following the mishandling of evidence in the sextortion and murder of a young woman named Lauren McCluskey. More than two years ago, McCluskey shared intimate photos with a university police officer to aid in the investigation of her eventual killer, who was blackmailing her with the photos. A review conducted by the Utah Department of Public Safety found that the officer accessed them multiple times and showed them to others on his phone on at least four occasions. The officer was not prosecuted at the time because the state's revenge porn law requires victims to suffer, quote, actual emotional distress for charges to be filed, which couldn't occur because McCluskey was already dead by the time the officer shared the photos. Hundreds of protesters gathered outside North Macedonia's interior ministry calling for action against digital sexual abuse. The demonstration was in response to the revelation that a chat group on Telegram with over 7,000 members was posting photos of women and girls, along with names and addresses. Tokyo's chief of the Olympics committee, Yoshiro Mori, is under fire for stating, quote, if we increase the number of women on the board... We have to also restrict their speaking time to an extent. Otherwise, they'll never stop. Currently, only 20% of the Olympics Committee are women. Japanese women responded on Twitter using the hashtag Don't Be Silent, causing Mori to issue an apology. Tech giant Google settled for $2.6 million, which will be paid to more than 5,500 employees and prior applicants for discrimination. The inquiry resulted in accusations that during a period spanning from 2014 to 2017, Google paid female engineers less than men in similar positions. The settlement will require Google to pay $1.3 million to more than 2,500 of its female engineers to compensate them for past discrimination alleged by the Labor Department. Another 1.2 million is earmarked for more than 1,700 women and Asians who unsuccessfully applied for engineering jobs at Google. Harvard professor Dr. Mark Ramsayer sparked outrage for publishing an academic paper in the International Review of Law and Ethics, arguing that South Korean comfort women chose prostitution and made their decision based on awareness of risks in order to increase economic gain. Quote, They chose prostitution over those alternative opportunities because they believed prostitution offered them a better outcome, Dr. Ramsayer said in his paper, stating that women were aware of the health risks and other dangers involved in working at the brothels and made their decision based on economic opportunities. Actress Evan Rachel Wood published a statement on Instagram February 1st accusing Marilyn Manson of abuse during the course of their three-year relationship prompting at least four other women to come forward with similar allegations. Wood created the Phoenix Act, which was signed into law by California Governor Newsom in 2019 to extend the statute of limitations on domestic violence from three years to five. It took effect in January 2020. While testifying before the California Senate, Wood spoke about violence suffered at the hands of a former partner but did not name Manson at that time. Salit garment worker Jaya Shri Kathirval was raped and murdered by her male supervisor at a factory supplier for fast fashion retailer H&M on January 5th. Her case highlights ongoing systemic rape and sexual abuse rampant in the garment industry in addition to grueling hours and low wages. An estimated 80 to 90% of those employed in garment factories for Western fast fashion corporations are women and girls, whereas managerial positions tend to be held by men. Two U.S.-based telemedicine platforms aimed at delivering hormone replacement therapy via post, including testosterone injections and estrogen patches, launched after receiving millions in funding... Folks received $25 million, and Plume raised $14 million, and both companies intend to grant online recommendations to begin hormonal transitions. This comes as the U.S. imposes stricter regulations regarding abortion telemedicine and its accessibility to women. U.S. tennis champion Martina Navratilova spoke out against President Biden's executive order issued on January 20th which replaced sex with gender identity under law. In an interview with BBC Radio 4, Navratilova proposed a separate provision from the executive order to ensure a level playing field in elite women's sports, saying, quote, an all-inclusive situation where trans men and women, just based on their self-ID, would be able to compete with no mitigation, no rules outside of that whatsoever, clearly would not be a level playing field. I'm going to speak now with Caroline Norma regarding a few of these recent events. Hello, Caroline.
1: Hi, Genevieve, great to be back again this week. Uh,
0: today, the first item we're gonna be talking about is a uh, Harvard professor, Dr. Mark Ram Sayer, who sparked outrage for publishing an academic paper in the International Review of Law and Ethics, arguing that South Korean comfort women chose prostitution and made their decision based on awareness of risks in order to increase economic gain. So what's your
1: opinion on this? Yeah, this is a topic that has been picked up by advocates of the uh, Japanese military sexual slaves who are referred to as euphemistically as the comfort women. They're advocates uh, in America who are often... uh, Asian background, women who have uh, joined together to, for example, enact statues in memorial of the victims of the Japanese military sexual slavery system during the Second World War, and to agitate for justice and redress for the, for the surviving victims. There's great organizations based in America who have taken up that struggle. And these, those organizations are the ones who have clocked a recent publication by a Harvard University law professor, who writes uh, mostly in the field of kind of neoliberal economics? He takes his uh, frames and concepts for his scholarship from that field and analyses uh, parts of Japanese history. So he's a Japanese historian, but a kind of an ideologically neoliberal economic historian. And most recently, so the article that they picked up on, the scholarship they picked up on from December last year was an article applying uh, an economic theory that he applied first in 1991 to the history of the pre-war history of uh, women in prostitution in Japan's semi-licensed districts. He applied that theory this time to the history of women Uh, used in the military sexual slavery system during the war. And the theory, as you said, Genevieve, sort of roughly is about suggesting that their economic interests in contracting with brothel owners and pimps to move into military brothels in mainland China and elsewhere were uh, reflected in the contracts that were uh, drawn up between these private operators and the women and uh, that – Therefore, the Japanese military and the let alone the Japanese government wasn't really involved in um, or responsible for the history of military sexual slavery during the war because ultimately these machinations of uh, women's uh, indenturing to military brothels occurred as a result of economic incentive and basic laws of economy in his kind of framing. So the point that I'd probably make here is that it's absolutely wonderful that uh, Ramsayer has been uh, noted for these kind of arguments because they're fully arguments that support uh, the Japanese government and Japanese right-wing groups in uh, denying any responsibility for the victimization of Asian Pacific women, uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, tens of thousands of them during the war and um, taking responsible post-war responsibility for their victimization um, it, it supports uh, anti-survivor rhetoric and activity in Japan, particularly amongst uh, right-wing men, and generally brings down any prospects that Japanese women in Japan themselves now have for justice for uh, survivors of sexual assault at all. It, it supports that whole men's rights movement in uh, Japan. It's for that reason, it's it's wonderful it's been picked up by women abroad and criticised, rightfully so. Just the point I would want to make is that Ramsayer made this exact argument about prostituted women, prostituted in Japan's civilian sex industry before the war. Uh, he made this argument in 1991 in a reasonably well-known article that is quite cited amongst um, scholars of this history, uh, the comfort women history. I think I've never seen a, a critique of that particular article that he wrote, and I've always wondered why. Uh, because it's just outright victim-blaming and anti-survivor and pro-pimp. It's just sort of all he does is articulate the commercial interests of pimps um, from their perspective and gives uh, no attention at all to uh, women's indenturing and enslavement and what that means when you're enslaved in a brothel. Um, So it's good that it's been picked up when he applies that kind of argument to women in military sexual slavery. Um, I'm not sure why the same kind of arguments were never criticised when they were against women in civilian prostitution. Um, The the circumstances of those two sets of women were not that different, actually. Um, So, well, I mean, I hope this is a, yeah, I hope this incident uh, gives people pause to go back to his old work and have a look where these ideas were f- you know, first fostered, because maybe if he'd been criticised a little bit more back in the 1990s over that kind of argument, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation where we are today, where Ramsey is now becoming a, a poster child for the Japanese right wing.
0: Well, I know far less about this issue than you do. You've written a couple of books on it, um, but what did surprise me without having the context that you have is the language that he used, uh, which it has this very academic but cold uh, feel to it. For example, game theory and indentured prostitution, these kinds of terms that seem very uh, far removed from any humanity of the situation. But also, is it fair to say that this type of argument and this kind of language removes any responsibility of men involved and places it within the economy so that the structural and systemic violence against women then becomes the the perpetrators are completely left out of the equation is that a fair assessment
1: yeah no that's a great assessment and it's not incidental either i don't think either so while we're focusing on these technicalities of contract and laws of economy, um, yeah, we completely bypass any, yeah, question about, so why in the first place are men needing to ejaculate into women's bodies, you know, regularly, let alone, you know, on the battle battlefield? And Ramsayer writes that off simply as, oh, the Japanese military had a problem with sexually transmitted disease uh, infections, um, bringing down the capacity of its uh, military deployments, and therefore that's why they engaged these pimps to recruit women and things like that so but that's not too unlike the to be in my view um, even the most critical scholarship of the military sexual slavery system still bypasses that question of why on earth have we got men wanting to do such a thing let alone you know it's such frequency and it's such enthusiasm I mean it's an insane thing to be doing women don't you know, golfing groups and do such things, but men do. Um, but they completely bypass, just like Ramsayer, they too, even the most liberal, um, bypass that question again. Keep coming back to the to the excuses of the Japanese military itself that were put at the time. This is, you know, this is the 1930s, and they they just accept on its face that there was an issue with sexually transmitted disease infections, and therefore that's why the system started. I mean, that's just an excuse. It's just the same justification that gets used for legalising prostitution in, in civilian society. I, I don't know why. I think, I mean, yeah, my, and obviously my view is that they, these historians have so little understanding of prostitution as a contemporary commercial activity that they kind of analyse this historical military version of it as if it's something, you know, quite wondrous and you know strange and you know idiosyncratic and they don't apply any of the knowledge that we already have of how these six industries work to to what they are in the past but yeah but coming back to your question um that the effect of that is exactly as you say the effect of that is is to never drill down into what on earth men are doing when they think they are prostituting women and and organizing systems to facilitate that activity that's right Yeah, and I think there's something remarkably
0: cruel about the academic approach that just completely dehumanizes all of the women involved. Um, There's so much that's been said about the choice argument itself, but for lack of a better word, it's cold-hearted nature of framing an argument that way without taking into consideration the, you know, unspeakable pain and
1: suffering of these women is quite shocking utterly shocking. And I encourage yeah women listening to read his article because he, of a 10-year-old girl, he says, she knew the job that she was getting into and she accepted those conditions. And he says, she was 10, but she still knew. I mean, if you, you're writing sentences like that and you're in a Harvard academic, I mean, you <laughs> you probably do need to sit back and have a good look at your life, I think.
0: Wow. Yeah. I, I feel like this could be part of a larger conversation about the problem with Academia and academia's um, uh, dehumanizing of women in general, but that that's something that's worth talking about more in detail. Yes. It's very important. Um, going on to the next point about Google. So recently, Google settled for a two point six million dollars for a discrimination lawsuit that found that they were systemically biased against women and Asians, either through denying them their applications for work or for paying them less. This was brought forward
1: by the U.S. Labor Department. I think we'll go on to talk in a minute about, yeah, this really important case, as you say, that's been brought by the U.S. Labor Department um, against Google for violations of employment and promotion. Um, standards but just before that I thought I'd just quickly mention what seems to be in the background of this particular case at least chronologically um, from the time of around the time of the Me Too movement so around about 2015 whether it was linked to the disclosures by the women in the American entertainment industry or not I don't know but women inside Google seem to have come forward with quite serious uh, disclosures of uh, sexual harassment and one of rape by high up men in the company against them, and sought to have something done about it. And it seems like the men that they accused were generally let go, but let go with massive payouts. And the women were not happy about that. And then the women, women themselves, of course, ended up leaving Google and sort of um, sort of melting into the walls. But um, in the meantime, a reasonable reasonable amount of information is available to read in newspaper reports about the kind of uh, rape perpetrated by uh, really high up Google executives. Um, So that's in the background of this Google case by the Labor Department. Also in the background as uh, more people will know already um, is the uh, anti-union activity that Google seems to have been involved in in terms of suppressing uh, the attempted organisation of a union with its own co- within its own company um, a few years ago. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I think this is really of interest to feminists in terms of the, where, where this has come from, that there has been a fair bit of uh, activity by women in the organisation uh, towards what's happening in the case now. Right. And in particular,
0: um, you'd sent me a link about this uh, 2015 case involving a high-ranking Google official named Mr Rubin, so it looks like he was accused of bondage sex videos and um, taking advantage of women at, in the office.
1: Yeah, this is one particular case um, where a this, this particular executive um, happened to be involved also uh, not only in uh, investigations within Google against him in relation to uh serious sexual harassment, alleged serious sexual harassment, but also involved in a divorce case outside of Google. And it's through this divorce case that journalists appear to have picked up documents submitted by his uh, ex-wife indicating that he was conducting some kind of uh, relationships with women in the company whereby they would uh, be subject to, you know, so-called BDSM enslavement uh, in return for payments of money and that they would be passed to other men by him. Um, that kind of activity uh, seems to have come through through in emails uh, submitted by his ex-wife, um, which is, I mean, this is just one particular case and one particular you know, piece of detail, but would we really be surprised that men at the very heart of the Western Internet industrial complex that's got pornography at its heart actually um, are themselves really caught up in that kind of um, activity against women. I mean, this, this is where the technology has been developed and where it's come from and what it's for. It's for pornography, and these are the men that are, are organizing it, I, I think.
0: Yeah, and it explains, you know, so much. It would explain so much, you know, if we, uh, if there were a large amount of engineers involved in developing these technologies who were also involved in promoting uh things like bdsm and not working to properly censor media for the protection of children or preventing child trafficking
1: exactly right and that's why this case now uh by the labor department in the US is, well, it's not, it's not addressing, it, of course, any of those things. It's addressing um, discrimination against in hiring and promotion uh, against women um, and Asian background people, uh, which is wonderful. Um, but it's, yeah, it's hopeful if it means that more light gets shed on all the other problems as well uh, in, in these tech companies. Uh, that, I mean, ultimately, we would want these kind of actions to lead to their, you know, break up which, you know, should have happened years ago because they're just too big and too powerful. But yeah, whether that happens is another story.
0: Right. And you almost kind of wonder, you know, I'm just speculating here. I don't have a basis for this. But if, for example, they were to put quotas in for the amount of women that are required to be in the engineering department or at the higher up levels of Google or other companies, you have to wonder if then the... Uh, self-ID would be implemented where men could just identify as women and then get that job.
1: Uh, it, can't, it surely can't be coincidental that a lot of the self-ID promotion and propaganda activists come from, apparently or seemingly so, from these areas. Um, and it's just, I mean, even if they are a minority in in this sector, the power of this sector is obviously, as we've found out since COVID, um, so massive throughout the Western world that they wouldn't have to do much for that kind of, yeah, to bring that kind of reality into existence where, yeah, you've got half of your women taken up with self-IDing males. So, yeah, I can imagine that's entirely a plausible scenario, I think.
0: And speaking of women in positions of power, we're going next to Tokyo's chief of the Olympics committee, Yoshiro Mori, who received a fair amount of backlash on social media for stating, quote, if we increase the number of women on the board, the Olympics committee board, we also have to restrict their speaking time to an extent, otherwise they'll never stop. And currently only 20% of the board members on the Olympics committee are women
1: yes i was glad you picked up this story because it's obviously getting a lot of airplay in japan and thankfully so because a lot of japanese feminists are very grateful actually that the western media has picked this up given its connection to the international community through the international olympic committee among other things Um, and yeah used it to highlight uh, this problem of uh, massive exclusion of women from the public sphere in any positions of management or decision making and that uh, in japan that that has been somehow missed i think uh, by many western commentators for many decades but recently i have to hand it to some uh yeah in America and in the UK to picking up on the fact that there is a definite trend in Japan, obvious statistics that show that women are actively excluded from positions of uh, money-making, positions of decision-making, positions of public profile. Uh, It's not the Middle East, but Uh, some of the exclusion of women from the public sphere starts to look a lot like some of the countries of the Middle East in some sectors at least and obviously the Olympic Committee uh, in Japan having only 20% of women um, why on earth the International Olympic Committee allowed Japan to have the Olympics awarded them the Olympics without imposing quite strict uh, requirements upon Japan for women's participation I do not know I can only imagine that they just didn't realise the extent to which women do not participate in uh, management here. Um, but, I mean, the, the International Olympic Committee uh, chairman only strengthened the hand of men organising the Olympics here in Japan when he accepted uh, Yoshiro Mori's uh, so-called apology and told everyone to move on. He he did that within one day of this, this um these statements being uh, discussed in the media but um, just to let people know that Mori who who heads the the committee here in Japan is um, an ex-prime minister of Japan as people will already know from uh, 20 years ago now. Um, He's known as very far right even within um, Japan as extremely conservative ruling government over a long period as you know and even within that government he's considered far right. So he's made statements about Japan being uh, a country of the gods, uh, that women who don't give birth have children, um, are a drag on the the, uh, country's pension system, Um, comments like that. How on earth someone like that became the head of the Olympic Committee within Japan, Uh, I do not know, given this kind of ultra-liberal apparent philosophy of the olympics itself with all of this international pressure from you know the the international organizing committee for example and all the sort of it's got a real western flavor the olympics of all things in the world um when it gets given to japan suddenly all of that dissipates and things like having Modi as the chairman um somehow is allowed to pass let alone allowed you know he he makes statements on top of the fact that you know he's, he's extremely right wing and non-inclusive of women and then he makes statements that are then accepted in- immediately by the international body. So uh, that's not helping things here in Japan but luckily this year his comments have been picked up so people have started to look at Japan and its uh, lack of gender equality a bit more which is good.
0: Although I would have thought um, given the media attention in recent years to the systemic exclusion of women from medical universities so recently there were several top medical universities which were deliberately Uh, ranking down women's entrance exam scores in order to deny them uh, education at their university. And that happened. It got some international backlash for a short time, and then it was a bit forgotten. So I'm kind of surprised myself, like you say, that this committee was allowed to have only 20% women. But we also see that women's sports in general and women as athletes are devalued, that generally men's sports are granted and receive more money. So it's as shocking as it, as it is, it's not without precedent. It's not that surprising, unfortunately.
1: I totally agree. That's the, yeah, the world of sport is a man's world. And the. in fact, you reminded me in saying that, that the Athletics Committee here in Japan recently took measures to try and stop the filming and photographing of its um, female athletes who are mostly underage in their training and their, sort of their public events are because they're being uh, turned into pornographic footage online um, and the athletes themselves are suffering because of that. And so, yeah, the committees come out to yeah, implement rules and to appeal to the public to stop it and all these kind of things. So, yeah, the status of, of women in sports is dropping fast and, and we can see that. Yeah, with the, even at the Olympic level, which is, yeah, very scary for the future.
0: Of course, then anything that women do, they're sexualized and sports is not an exception. I do want to point out, though, in response to what he said about women talking too much, I actually returned to some research that I had looked at before. There are a lot of these. There's not just one singular study, but several studies which have pointed out that in mixed-sex gatherings, men speak more, they speak more often, they speak longer, and women's speaking is far and away overestimated from the amount of time that they actually speak and that men interrupt for reasons which are different from women who tend to give what are called supportive interruptions, things like saying mm-hmm and go on and things like that. So. Not only do women speak less in meetings and in formal situations with men present, but they're also assumed to speak more than they actually do. So I think that that is a perfect example of what is going on in this situation.
1: Oh, great analysis there. Exactly right. And it's this thing again, isn't it, that women are mere props in men's world. So apart from supportive comments and laugh background laughter or noises of empathy speaking at all is is beyond the pale um and beyond what's expected so no wonder men and even women get the impression that women are talking too much is because they actually are in men's world they are talking speaking at all is talking too much so yeah moddy at yes at least brought that fact to the surface so we have to thank him for that
0: (laughs) kind of ironically but yeah (laughs) um so it was recently reported that a Dalit garment worker was raped and murdered by her male supervisor at a factory supplier for fast fashion retailer H&M. Her body was found on January 5th, but the report came to international media a few days ago. She was 20 years old, her name was Jayashree Kathiraval. and on the 29th of January, her family claims that the owner of the factory, Eastman Exports, brought a mob of 50 men to their village who forced their way into their home and demanded that they accept a check for 5,000 pounds and to sign documents that they had not read. So this is something I would really like to talk about in terms of the systemic nature of the abuse that's going on in garment factories and the fact that this is not new. This has been known uh, even specifically known to H&M for several years. There were reports in 2018 by international organizations uh, finding that, uh, and this is a quote uh, of a title from The Guardian, it says, abuse is daily reality for female garment workers for Gap and H&M. So this report found that women working in factories for these companies, which I also want to mention is not strictly limited to H&M, were being raped by supervisors, uh, in addition to working long hours for very little pay. They were being called whores and dogs and beaten. And if they dared to speak up, then their supervisors would give them broken machinery and then punish them for not producing fast enough. There was also a strike in November, 2020. So a few months ago, there was a strike of 800 women in India um, against these working conditions. So in the first place, they've known about this for a long time. They, con- they continuously promise to investigate and to do something about it. As far as I know, they haven't been held accountable for any of this. This goes on not only in India, but in several countries in Southeast Asia, including Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, uh, Cambodia, uh, all of these countries where the garment industry is a backbone of their economy. And historically the garment is- industry has been one of the most female dominated industries in the world. Even today, more than 70% of garment workers in China are women. In Bangladesh, 85%. In Cambodia, as high as 90% of garment
1: workers are women. Thanks, Genevieve. That uh, rundown is breathtaking. Um... You're right. I mean, we have been hearing about about this, haven't we, for years, if not decades. Uh, But those kind of details, uh, I'm not sure that are at the front of our minds all the time, certainly not my mind, um, where you mentioned um, about the percentage of women in these economies that are involved in textiles and producing clothes for women in the West, especially – and clothes that aren't even sold that cheaply in the West either, it has to be said. I mean, we kind of think of these factories, I think, as um, giving employment to poor women in the third world and um, producing sort of cheap goods for Western consumers to um, buy to make up for their miserable lives. But actually, you know, there must be massive profits being made in the, in the middle somewhere because these clothes aren't that cheap, um, in some cases at least. So yeah, so the clothing are not sh- sold
0: cheaply. and actually the garment industry exported products valued at 34 billion in the 2018 to 2019 fiscal year. So even during COVID, they've been turning profits. Um, and at the same time, they have been decreasing salaries for their workers, uh, laying them off in massive numbers without back pay, without severance pay. There've been a lot of protests because these garment workers are some of the hardest hit by economic um, repercussions of the pandemic in the world. Uh, It's, there was even a report that in Bangladesh women were considering killing their children in order to eat. That's how bad it is because they're making less than $40 a month. They have children to feed and then they're getting laid off without any pay. And there are lines and lines of women um, outside of factories begging to be hired simply because they need to eat. And even though the work is so terrible, it's, it's considered to be women's work, of course, um, because it's undervalued naturally. Um, Okay, so for example, a global justice organization survey found that 80% of participants in the survey in Bangladesh said they had experienced or witnessed sexual harassment and violence at work. Uh, The garment industry accounts for 83% of Bangladesh's exports. So they really rely on these women and yet they treat them so terribly. Um, And there was also a report um, in Lesotho uh, last year, the Workers' Rights Consortium, uh, revealed widespread incidences of rape, sexual assault, and harassment at these garment factories in Masaru. And women had testified that they were actually contracting HIV from the rape from their managers. They're working up to 140 hours a week in these conditions. They're often denied pay if they don't comply to be raped by their managers. I And I just want to touch on the fact that this this is not a new phenomenon, unfortunately. This goes along with the history of industrialization. We saw similar situations for women in Ireland, England, and the US. Um, It seems to be that historically, when countries industrialize, they tend to do so on the back of women and cheap labor. Sometimes, in some cases, women were being rounded up and sold to factories. Uh, I know that was the case in Japan during the Meiji period. Now that these industries are expanding, they're moving out into Ethiopia, where women receive the lowest wages in the world. They receive $26 a month at these factories. And there are a few organizations trying to do something about this. I think that there should be more given the scale of the problem. I've tried to talk about this in the past and find it really difficult to find organizations to donate to to help them. But one is called the Clean Clothes Campaign. And there's also a website called fashionrevolution.org that you can look into.
1: Thanks for those recommendations. Absolutely vital, yeah, that we concern ourselves seriously with this issue as an issue of Sexuality that's of interest to radical feminists in particular, but also an issue of male collaboration. I mean, there must be a great deal of collaboration going on between men in the West who are the ones making the, the absolute profits and and doing the most exploiting and acting like slaveholders of the the eighteenth the century. But and it, just in addition to that, I mean, if we look at the collaboration between male patriarchal states that there's men in local countries sexually benefiting from the sort of effective enslavement of these women in factories, and then men benefiting from the profits made out of the factories locally. The scale is not on any comparable level to that of men in the West, but we yeah, obviously as feminists, the ideal thing to do is to understand that we need to collaborate with our sisters in other countries to to try and beat this um, male bonding that occurs across states to produce situations. Like, I mean, this is the situation as you describe it, Genevieve, is completely unspeakable. And yeah, we need to, to do something to support the women, like clean clean clothes campaign and fashion revolution. That, that'd be good, I think.
0: Oh, just quickly, that reminded me when you talked about the patriarchal benefit of these systems. So H&M founder, Erling Persson, uh, founded the company in 1947, following a trip to post-World War II U.S. He was really impressed with the production and factories that he saw in the U.S. And his son, Stefan Persson, was the 17th richest person in the world in 2013. His current net worth is $18.5 billion, And now his son has gone on to be a CEO at the company, Carl Johan, and his net worth is 1.6 billion. He's the wealthiest man in Sweden. So you can clearly see here from father to son passing on this business that is exploiting women and girls. This is not simply uh, adult women as well. It, girls are involved in the sweatshop labor
1: also. That's right. And being proletarianized, I mean, the, the left will talk about the the, the crimes of capitalist men like Person and, and others in the West um, in terms of proletarianizing, colonising the third world and um, turning, you know, subsistence level farmers into workers like they're doing in India as well and, you know, therefore extracting profit for, from them and and organising capitalism that way. But when it happened in Western countries, like, like you're right, Genevieve, in America as well, this kind of um, has this history as well, but people went on to move out of that you know, those conditions of complete exploitation and into liberal society. But it's interesting that we're seeing when it's women in these kind of extractive industries, it just stops there. I mean, they they don't ever move out of that situation. The society doesn't move into sort of any type of advanced industrialised country like we, the so-called Western countries. Um, And just generation after generation of mother to daughter to granddaughter gets stuck in these sort of factories where their lives are short and miserable uh, yeah I think this sort of needs to be yeah big and I know there has been Maria Mees, among others has done good analysis of this situation but yeah we really need it updated I think for for this kind of the kind of details that you're talking about Genevieve especially to do with sex you know sexuality and rape
0: yeah I think it really touches on kind of the core of women's oppression which is their free labor, their exploitation. Certainly there are other ways in which women are exploited, but this phenomenon is uh, international and has been going on for a long time. A recent study found that puberty blockers stunted children's height and impaired their bone mass density. This study was conducted on 44 children aged 12 to 15 who had been treated for gender dysphoria at England's NHS Specialist Clinic for Children. Recently, the Gender Identity Development Service had suspended the treatment for children following a high court order that found that it was unlikely for children under 16 to give informed consent to drugs that may impair their future fertility. Um, In the article regarding this study, Dr. Michael Biggs of Oxford University is quoted as saying, the striking finding is that there was no improvement in gender dysphoria we would have expected a large positive placebo response as these kids and their parents were desperate to get their drugs. So not only is this causing uh, stunted growth, harmful effects on their bone mass density, but it also seems to not be alleviating their gender dysphoria. According to this.
1: Yes. These are blockbuster uh, empirical findings. I think over a study that went for seven years. So that's, pretty reliable in obviously mythological terms but obviously we're not hearing much about these kinds of findings in places like Australia that's um, just introduced legislation that uh, completely ignores these kind of warning signs Um, but at least now we've got some empirical ground to stand on in um, rejecting the argument that puberty blockers are reversible and Temporary. I um, I think think the the arguments of transgender activists has been something like these so called puberty blockers, which I know you've mentioned in last week's last week's recording that um, is a, a euphemistic term actually uh, for off label drugs that have absolutely nothing to do with giving, being nothing to do with children's health. Um, but putting that aside, um, to find that they uh, reduce Bone density and mineral mass within bones—that's serious. We we all know that what happens to you know, elderly people who get a hip fracture, you know that their their life from there on is is very shortened. Um, and so this issue about um, breaking bones um, because you've been on puberty blockers for a few years um, during your childhood is. Huge, let alone all of the other effects that this study has uh, found, and also the finding that the drugs do not alleviate the uh, symptoms, so so-called gender dysphoria as a, a mental condition, do not alleviate those d- that distress. Um, at the same time as inflicting physical disadvantage on the person on the patient themselves, is um, an extraordinary finding that would surely have to stop governments. Um, allowing the prescribing of these drugs to children when they're off-label. They've produced negative clinical results in seven-year-long studies. Um, What more possible evidence could we want, surely? What's striking to me about this
0: is the fact that this isn't actually new information. It's only new in the context of children. But these drugs Um, which the most commonly used one is called Lupron. That's the, that's the, uh, not the drug name, but the brand name is called Lupron, Um, has been used for women's issues for a couple of decades, I think now. I know that it was created in the early 80s um, for prostate cancer. And then starting around the early 90s, I believe, was being given to women for all sorts of under-researched women's issues, including endometriosis and cysts, and is also used for IVF. Um, It's just sort of in my view, um, and I'm not a doctor, of course, but in my view, seems to have just been hoisted onto women after it failed to treat men. And it's the same drug that's being used here. It's called a GNRH agonist. And it was also shown to decrease bone density of women who took it for these issues. Um, They had reported incredible pain, um, their bones becoming brittle. There were Uh, reports of women saying that their jawbones were falling off of their faces, Um, shocking things that seem to have been uh, covered up, put under the rug, and also early menopause. Women were reporting going into a state of menopause at the age of 30. Now, these drugs are called puberty blockers, so I think that the collective memory about this issue is missing that by changing the name of it, it's... um, made it so that if you search for negative impacts of puberty blockers, you're not going to find Lupron. So I think that the renaming and, and rebranding of this drug here is crucial to the misunderstanding of the uh, health impacts.
1: What an amazing thing to hear f- from you there, to discover that a drug that had been obviously developed by pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies and then failed for its designated purpose has then been yeah, rebranded decade after decade for something or other to do with women or something or other to do with children whose lives we don't care about that much anyway. So they can keep selling it and, and recycling it because of all the, presumably all the money they spent investing in its development in the first place. And, you know, well, we have a drug, we might as well just keep selling it for various reasons. And oh, Absolutely. It, I, oh, yeah. No,
0: go ahead. I just wanted to point out really quickly that for men, this drug is only given to them when they are dying of cancer, so terminal prostate cancer, or if they're a convicted sex offender. So it's been used for some time to chemically castrate sex offenders. So for men, it's a last resort or a punishment, but for women and children, it's um, you know this cure, this life-saving cure.
1: Amazing. That, that is something I haven't heard before and puts a new light on the whole debate entirely, I think. And also the hormone replacement therapy, and I feel that was only five years ago, 10 years at the most, that all the menopausal women were coming off hormone replacement therapy because of the cancer scare. I don't know what that, whether that ended up being true or not, but where is all of that? information and sort of public concern and wariness gone like legitimate public wariness of of that those drugs as, as well where is that gone now that hormone replacement therapy is available in some countries to children as young as 16 and um, in addition to these so-called puberty blockers it's like the the, the transgenderist ideology swamps and covers up any previous, concern that anyone ever had even a couple of years ago we we suddenly yeah as you say our collective memory dissipates and all we can see is the the marketing that we're given by the activists
0: and speaking of that two companies in the u.s raised a collective 39 million dollars for health platforms that would deliver hormone replacement therapy as it's called to the doorstep Uh, The first one is called FOLKS, that's FOLKS with an X, of course, which raised $25 million for its um, so-called health platform uh, that seeks to send estrogen patches, uh, testosterone injections. And remarkably, on their website, it says that um, treatment for erectile dysfunction is coming soon, of course. The indication here being that if you're a man who's taking estrogen or testosterone suppressors, you will suffer erectile dysfunction and you will need to take an additional treatment on top of that. So it's quite plain here that they're saying that men who identify as women don't have surgery. I mean, what do you think of this?
1: Yes, I was glad you noted the creation of these two companies and their recent capital raising uh, in the United States and the fascinating lineup of um, products that they're offering, it's effectively an online uh, platform uh, where you are supposed to receive telehealth, which is the obviously the uh, online medical consultation, supposedly with a doctor but not always and apparently in, in America. Uh, since COVID, the telehealth regulations have been relaxed to the point where it looks like you might just be able to fill in a form and get a prescription that you then take down to your pharmacy. But I think that's all still being worked through because they don't know whether COVID's going to uh, allow that, that kind of relaxed um, regulation to stay in place or not. But these companies appear to have now jumped in and raised this bunch of capital to set up uh, effectively, they're just online te- technological uh, businesses to act like Amazon in uh, posting uh, hormones and erectile dysfunction medicine. And then on their website, one of the websites says that they're also going to get into in the future uh, family creation for their patients. And I presume that that means that sterilising yourself through things like hormone therapy um, then allows, you know, business opportunities to open up whereby they treat that then uh, in terms with... With other technolo- technologies, uh, whether it be surrogacy um, or other types of um, assisted reproductive technological sort of options, I'm not sure. But it's interesting to see that what COVID has done uh, in terms of the developments in uh, the commercialization of transgenderism. And one of them appears to be this uh, growing up around this relaxation of the telehealth regulations in the US and whether those. Uh, regulations are being relaxed in other countries. I think is something to watch out for because these companies will probably spring up wherever the the, re- the regulations are relaxed. I suppose.
0: Right. Uh, I neglected earlier to say the name of the other company, which is Plume, and they raised fourteen million to start their company. And if you look at their website, it seems to be that they're offering not only prescriptions but it says virtual access to care. So I am assuming some kind of video conferencing or consultation. But if you look down at their other services, um, it says one time letter writing service. So for $150, you can get a letter of support For medical surgery
1: isn't that incredible absolutely incredible that's no level of medical responsibility to patients uh, as we've understood it um, in the western world in the post war that actually doctors have responsibilities to patients in terms of actually consulting with them and this is I mean this really is the direction we're seeing isn't it with the transgenderist kind of ideology coming in, that it's lifting responsibility from teachers, from medical professionals, from government officials, public servants, to actually serve the material interests and the you know well-being interests of, of children and even adults. Um, if you can set up a business that doles out hormone replacement therapy or letters for surgeries or prescriptions for this and that, um, presumably to, to children from 16 years onwards in some jurisdictions, then that's that's just doctors not doing, holding any responsibility towards the public that pays for their training and pays for their salaries in most countries at all. So, yeah, it's kind of this gradual winding down of any sort of professional standards whatsoever in the Western world. And it's happening on all fronts. And the transgenderist ideology seems to be crucial to that process in in the strangest of ways.
0: Right. Absolutely, Caroline. That reminds me of this really powerful quote from a book about surrogacy and reproductive technologies, actually, because all of these things can be seen to be linked, right? When you get rid of your fertility, when you're sterilized through these treatments, and then you need constant medication, you're a continual patient, basically you're entirely dependent on the medical system, but it also may it means that your reproduction cannot continue without technology. So I wanted to share this quote here from Robin Rowland and her book in 1992 called Living Laboratories, Women and Reproductive Technologies. She says, they have made children products of the nexus between commerce, science and medicine, calling experimentation on women and human society, therapy and camouflaging the intention to map and control human genetics with the rhetoric of helping the infertile. In this process, women have become the experimental raw material in the masculine desire to control the creation of life patriarchy's living laboratories. And I just think this is so relevant to what's happening here with, as I said before, turning the human body into a continuous patient dependent and then splitting people from their bodies and commodifying bodies in that way.
1: Exactly right. And yeah, Robin Rowland's comment there about women and children being the vehicles by which these kind of aims are pursued i mean particularly with the example the great example that you've brought up here with these startup companies um, for telehealth transgenderist telehealth we might call them suggesting that the consumers might first uh, be on the receiving end of the the prescriptions that they're going to to doll out without any checks and balances at all and then moving that on because i think both companies flag the fact that they're keen on moving into these areas of so-called family what they call family creation uh, assisted reproductive technologies Um, they name all sorts of euphemisms to describe that area of innovation Um, but ultimately you kind of see that these planned commercial activities are in the interests of men they might be using women and children at the moment as the vehicle to get there and to sort of normalise and to home the technologies and do all the things that they need to do to to get it all uh, underway. But ultimately, yeah, we'll have surrogacy and then we'll have women being used as vehicles to produce children for men in various ways or these sort of technologies seem to all ultimately end up at the same place. And that is, yeah, further subordination of women to the interests of uh, men's yeah, innovative um, innovations in patriarchy, I think. Mm. Um, Just
0: really quickly, I do want to mention the recent backlash against a proposed law in Spain. Of course, not being able to speak Spanish myself, I don't want to give any misinformation. However, it seems that, uh, according to some commenters on Twitter, it seems that this bill would allow children to be placed on puberty blockers at an undefined age, which Someone sent me a text of the this part of the bill that said, uh, starting from puberty. So any time that the child begins puberty, which of course depends on the child. So there's no specific guideline here for the actual age of the child, which is really awful um, and a, a huge
1: breach of children's rights. I think. Yeah, me too, Genevieve. I yeah don't have Spanish either, so we're sort of reliant so much on the. Spanish-speaking feminists to, to pass this information to us and we're so grateful to them. The only, yeah, the extra only information that I had in my mind was that um, we heard from Sylvia Carrasco on the uh, Women's Human Rights Campaign YouTube panel presentations. Uh, we've heard from her twice over the past six months um, and she mentioned in one of her presentations that the left-leaning uh, Spanish government, the equality minister specifically, had Drafted this bill, but then only submitted a summary of it to the public for public consultation, which ended in November last year. And so the, the draft that's come out is apparently kind of new to everyone. So the fact that we don't know its details yet um, is not surprising, because I think even feminists on the ground are being sort of hit from all sides, uh, uh, with the um, moves towards transgenderism, there, um, it's interesting. I think I just wanted to, to mention with the politics in Spain too, that our sisters are really working hard there to to head off some of this stuff. Because I think they're particularly. I mean, Sylvia Crasco certainly discussed this point that they are really exposed to transgenderist developments in Spain um, just by virtue of their, you know, history of you know limited history of sort of democratic process in the past. Decades, but putting that aside, um, it's a shame that Spain, you know, quite has quite a decent left government and has had so since the uh, global financial crisis, as people know. And obviously, it has abolitionist tendencies, for example, which have been wonderful thanks to the great work of Spanish feminists over a long time. But it looks like, and I I don't have the details of Spain uh, either, but it looks like it's causing some split within uh, the, the government over this transgender issue. And we see that happening playing out across a number of fairly decent left-wing parties of various natures. Not perfect, but I think it happens more so to the decent ones because there are people within those parties who understand the threat that uh, these innovations pose for women and children and attempt to do something about it within their parties and then that weakens the parties overall and then that leaves the space open for truly liberal and woke fake leftist parties to come in and, and take up ground. So it's sort of a it's a really unfortunate thing that, yeah, the, we're not able to tackle liberals more strongly on this and what they're doing to, to the real left through this transgenderist push. And yeah, I really hope that feminist sisters in Spain can manage to get on top of this before they start to lose political ground on many fronts um, in Spain.
0: Right, I'm not sure exactly the political climate in Spain regarding this, except to the extent which it seems to replicate um, all over the world in terms of the divisiveness of this issue, particularly among people who would traditionally call themselves liberals or leftists um, in that regard, but Uh, What I do think is interesting, at least in terms of the US uh, mirroring this phenomenon is that it is also supported by right-wing people uh, or people who consider themselves to be conservative or on the right. And yet the division about the issue is not really being seen there. It seems to be one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial issue on the left. And yet On the other side, they also will support this issue, but it doesn't seem to be quite as contentious and uh, fueled by anger as it is on the left. Um, But yeah, it really is a very effective way of separating uh, women from a movement and putting them in an isolated political situation where they lack power. And it's really unfortunate, but As you said there is some hope with the incredible work that women are doing and what we've seen in the backlash in spain in particular exactly
1: right and the feminist party so spain had a feminist party as part of a coalition with a group of leftists called the united left that had some history in the country since the global financial crisis. And they were rejected from that coalition on this issue. <laughs> it's hard to believe uh, how much yeah, division this issue really does cause on the left. But just on your comments there, Genevieve, I was fascinated to hear that. So were you saying that the American right also contains the same split where some rightists support transgenderist aims, but it doesn't appear to have caused political friction in, in there? on their side? Is, is, is that what you meant to say? Well, I can't give a specific person or politician
0: um, because generally, until very recently, it wasn't being discussed in mainstream politics in the US, um, or at least the criticism aspect of it wasn't. But, you know, just from seeing people online, I you see these stories. Uh, there's anecdotal evidence of... Um, People who consider themselves Christian or people who consider themselves supporters of Trump, who also have supported transgender ideology. And it just appears to me from seeing things um, in this context, that the divisiveness between that side of the political spectrum is not as existent or not as harsh as it is on the left.
1: That's a completely fascinating insight. I loved. I'm glad to hear that um, insight. It hadn't occurred to me that that would be happening on the other side at all. But yeah, if it is, then I don't know whether that's a good thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it had been pointed out, you know, not just myself, but many other people online had kind of pointed out this phrase, you know, called trans the gay away, which would be wonderful for people who are who don't want to have a gay child, the trans solution seems to be one that
1: they would embrace in that case. I see where the, the split would likely occur there. That makes complete sense. It hadn't occurred to me before you said it, but yes, that um, would be a foreseeable split on the right, uh, which would maybe be very unfortunate for us on our side, because it would probably help us to have a united opposition on their side, at least that, could do some of the work that we're having to do in terms of opposition but if they're split then that's an even weaker force than we have now and doesn't bode very well i don't think um for our chances
0: well let's hope that uh we continue to see a lot more pushback against these types of legislations um especially uh in regards to these issues for children i know that this impacts women in so many ways but but My hope is that people who will see what's happening with the medication of children will then start to understand the larger problems and issues that are going on all related to
1: this because there are so many. I'm really with you there, Genevieve. I completely agree.
0: Thank you for tuning in. That's our episode for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can find me on Twitter at womenreadwomen or by email at contact at womens-voices.org.